I love the acoustic sets, don't you? That just, I don't know, it's a, it's a whole different sound than we normally have, but I love it. It's great. Thank you, guys. Um, so I want to just say a special thank you, too. We need to thank our guys for, I mean, we had some men come yesterday. Yesterday morning, there was a whole big pile of ice and snow, and you couldn't get in our front doors because it all came off the roof. And so make a few quick phone calls, and some of our men were here, and and they're up on the roof shoveling it off and fixing the gutter. And so thank you, men, for that work yesterday. They, so if, if they hadn't have done that, we'd be meeting in the parking lot right now because you couldn't get in here. So we're very thankful, aren't we, that they came yesterday. Yeah. Um, also, this Thursday morning, this Thursday at noon, we're, you know, we've been praying on Tuesdays at noon. We've had a prayer meeting here, and it's been awesome. Um, but uh, we're just kind of changing the scheduling a little bit. And now that Tuesday prayer is going to be on Thursdays, starting this Thursday. So maybe if you weren't able to make it on Tuesday for whatever reason, maybe now you can make it on Thursday. We'd love to have you. But it's every Thursday right here at noon. And uh, we pray. Even if you take your lunch break, you know, come pray and then head back to work if you can. Uh, stay as long as you can. That's fine but we'd love to have you join us. So this morning, actually, I need to get my Bible if we're going to do this right. So this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. So if you would turn there, we started last week this series in, in the letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. And so last Sunday, we looked at Galatians chapter 1. And um, really, I was just just leaving this morning, like the, the title, we can almost title this whole series in Galatians losing your religion like that's really kind of in a nutshell what the little letter to the Galatians is it's it's losing your religion and so as you're looking that up I want to make just a couple of statements about religion to that sort of set the framework for our, our study this morning the first is this religion is a form of worry because worry uh, says, well, God's not big enough to handle this, so I have to fill in the gap. And, right, if you and I are filling in the gap, now we have a reason to be worried. See? And religion says the same thing about salvation. Jesus isn't quite enough. He's not total. His salvation is not totally complete. It's not able. So we need to help him out a little bit. We need to fill in the gap. That's what religion says. Religion says God did his part. Oh, yeah, that's great. Jesus died on the cross. Now I have to do my part. So religion is a form of worry. And I found a lot of religious people swing on either two sides. Either, either they're overly, either they're insecure. You ask a religious person, do you know for sure if you were to die today, if you'd go to heaven? Well, I think so, maybe. Maybe insecure or the other side is overly false secure oh yeah absolutely I talk to God all the time I I have my angel right here and I'm you know whatever la 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 people say so either religion either makes a person insecure or falsely secure it's first statement second thing about religion is this the greatest temptation in your life is the temptation to religion greater than any other temptation because every other temptation 
only tempts you with fun or maybe to feel fulfilled for a moment. But religion promises life, promises that you're right with God. And because every one of us has in our hearts this incredibly very real, I mean, every one of us, every human being on the planet who's ever lived, the Bible says God has set eternity into the hearts of men. Every human being has this in their heart that says, I want to be right with God. Therefore, religion has an incredible appeal. Religion is the strongest temptation in your life that you'll ever face. You couple that with the fact that every other temptation, you know, I mean, it's rather obvious. You know, I know if it, I know it's wrong. I mean, we've all been there before. I know that X temptation is wrong, but boy, it's a lot of fun. I'm going to go for it anyway. I'll say I'm sorry later. Religion promises that you'll, you know, look right. It promises that you'll be socially acceptable, um, spiritually acceptable. And so you can be trapped in religion for your whole life and never even know it because you look on the outside just like everything is fine. Therefore, religion is an extremely strong temptation. And some of us, I'm going to say this this morning, some of us were saved by religion. And this morning, my prayer is that you become saved by the gospel. There's a very real difference. So we started in this book, this little letter in Galatians. And here's the background very quickly. The Apostle Paul, he uh, starts a bunch of churches in this region. It's about the size of central Connecticut called Galatia. And so Galatia has a number of churches. So the letter to Galatians was circulated around to these different churches. And Paul, these guys are Gentiles. They're, they're Greeks doing the Greek thing. And Paul shares the gospel with them. And they respond, what's the gospel? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul gives it in a nutshell. It says this, you can look at it. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. You see, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ gave himself. Why? Well, for our sins. Did Jesus die for his sins? No, Jesus was perfect. He died for your sins, my sins. And did he do that just for, just because it's a good thing to do? Was, you know, what was Jesus' motive? Was his motive just altruistic? Like, oh, this is a great thing to do. I'll die for humanity. No, had a very specific purpose in mind. To rescue you from this present evil age. That's the gospel. And the gospel says, that's all you need. Jesus did, it's a once and done deal. Jesus did it. Do you accept that? Do you receive that? It's yours. That's the gospel. Paul preaches that to these Galatians. They get saved. They're having a time in their lives. And then these guys, Judaizers, they're called Judaizers. They come in after Paul left. And they go, you know, uh, Jesus is great, but if you want to be a real Christian, you have to be Jewish too. And so all you Gentile guys, you're going to have to get circumcised, and you're going to have to stop eating bacon. You're going to have to follow our dietary restrictions. You're going to have to follow all of our laws, all of our rules, you know, follow our festivals, and so forth. Jesus is great and all, but. Any, that but 
Anything after that but is religion. <laughs> Jesus is great and all, but. And Paul becomes extremely angry. We said that last week Galatians is the, probably the angriest book in the whole Bible. He's livid. In chapter 1, he, he curses two different times in chapter 1. He's so angry. And you go, why would he be so angry? Interesting. Think back to Jesus' life. When's the only time that we know in Jesus' life that he was visibly angry? Vein popping, you know, angry. When? He's clearing the temple, right? The temple grabs the whip, throws over the tables, throws out the money changers. He clears the temple. But why is he so mad? Is he just mad because they got sheep in the temple? No. His anger was because religion had come between honest worshipers and God. You see, the honest worshipers coming to the temple to worship. And the temple goes, uh... Well, that's great, except you're going to have to use the temple-approved sheep and the temple-approved dove in order for it to be the temple-approved sacrifice. Oh, and this week only, it's twice the price. That's all. But for you, a deal. I'll, you know, right? That, and Jesus goes, that, he blew his lid. And he clears the temple because religion got in the way between honest worshipers and God. And here in Galatians, same thing. Paul leads these guys to the gospel, to Christ. They're enjoying freedom in Christ. Judaizers come in. Here's a layer of religion. Now, if you want to be a good Christian, you're going to have to do X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. And Paul responds in the same way. Absolutely livid. And he writes to the Galatians to try to correct this. And last week we saw that he lays out clearly the difference between the true gospel and all the false gospels that are out there. And there's only one true gospel. Everything else is bogus. And one of the biggest differences between the true gospel and false gospels is the true gospel comes from God, motivated by God, done by God. False gospels say you have to do X, Y, Z. It's your way to come up to God. So then we come into Galatians chapter 2, and we discover that religion continues to put the screws to honest worshipers, bearing down pressure on people and imposing itself on our lives. And what I believe God wants to do in you and me this morning is to show you the areas where you've been, where you have given in, where I have given in, to the temptation of religion. Because like I said earlier, there's no greater temptation in your life than religion. And every one of us, myself included, I'm not, we're all in the same boat here, friends. Every one of us uh, falls prey to it. And so let's take a look at three specific ways in which religion puts the screws to honest worshipers and imposes its pressure on us. I just want to read that we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to read it in three chunks. So chunk one, talk, chunk two, talk, chunk three, talk. And that's where we're headed, okay? There's the outline. So I start with uh, chapter two, verse one. Paul goes, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. 
I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running my race or had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is Peter's other name. Um, remember, Peter is sort of his nickname. Cephas was his birth name. So Jesus nicknamed him Peter. Um, so James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Stop right there for a second. So Paul is having to defend himself to the Galatians because one of the things that religious people always do, one of the questions they ask is, who gives you the right to say or do what it is that you're saying and doing? Where did you get permission to do that? And Paul says, look at this gospel that I'm preaching. You know, I got, it's backed up by the apostles. He goes to Jerusalem, right? He meets with the apostles. They have this whole big conference. And then, and he goes, and the outcome of that was Peter, James, and John, arguably the three greatest names in Christendom, next to, right, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, big names. They gave us the right hand of fellowship. Paul got his, if you want to know where he got his approval from, he got it from the apostles. That's what he says. And he goes, not only that, and here's his test case, I took Titus with me. Now, Titus is a Greek, which means Titus isn't circumcised. And so if circumcision was such a big deal, why didn't the apostles force Titus to become circumcised when he was there at our meeting in Jerusalem? They didn't. So his message, you see, to the Galatians is these Judaizers, these guys that are telling you you need to do this, they're totally off base because the apostles in Jerusalem aren't forcing the issue. So why are these guys forcing the issue? The Galatians are meant to go, oh, oh, okay, well, cancel that procedure, please. <laughs> off the hook on that one, right? So one of the things that religion is going to, one of the things that religious people always ask is, who gives you the right? Religious people love, they love the hierarchy, love it. You got the grand poobah and the grand marshal and then the pope and the 
cardinals and the archbishop and the bishop and the this and the that and the priest and the pastor and the elder and the da-da-da, and now we have committees, this committee and that committee and that committee and that committee. Religious people love all that stuff. You know what? You don't need a committee to tell you to love your neighbor. You don't. You know, the, the, the message of Scripture is if you see the need, God expects you to meet the need. But a religious person, here's what they do. Here's somebody hungry. I, I see somebody hungry. I go, uh, well, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. You know, we ought, to make a, we ought to make a committee. There should be a program. We should start a program to feed the hungry. That's what we should do. Well, meanwhile, the person's starving in front of them. I don't need a committee to tell me to feed somebody who's hungry. You don't, you don't need pastoral support to share the gospel with your friends who don't know Jesus yet. You don't need that. Jesus gave it to you. Go for it. You see? But religion always wants to, they want to fill in the boxes. They want, you know, they want the chart to be nice and clear. And it's not that organization is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I know people that say, oh, I'm against organized religion. And I go, disorganized religion is better? I can't imagine. So organization is important. It's not not, not important. It's just that I, I come to it. You don't need a committee to tell you to feed the hungry. Go for it. The need is in front of you. God expects you to meet the need. It's that simple. But religion puts layers and they want to know who gave you the right, who gave you the approval, who da 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 da. And Paul sort of played into it in a sense by answering the question, because that was the big debate, right, with the Galatians, was, well, who gave Paul the right to give the message that he gave? Paul goes, okay, you want to go there? I got the right. I got approval in Jerusalem from the apostles. So he answers the question, but the bottom line, friends, is, did Paul really need approval from the apostles to give the Galatians the truth about Jesus? first thing. Second thing is this. Let's go on. We read in Galatians chapter 2, we discover the next pressure of religion is the pressure of appearance. And it's so strong that even Peter gave into it. Look at verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. <clears throat> when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So remember, if some of you remember your, your book of Acts in the Bible, you remember the story of Peter and how he received this vision at one point of this sheet coming down out of heaven and you know all these unclean animals and then the voice of God saying, rise up and eat. And, and at first Peter was disgusted because he had never eaten anything that wasn't kosher. And God goes, hey, don't call that unclean. I call it clean. You know the story, right? 
Well, that had happened to Peter before this. Peter had already experienced some breakthrough. As a Jewish man, there was no way that Jews, they would not eat with Gentiles. That was gross to them. And actually, there are still some uh, forms of Judaism, I believe, Hasidic Jews or extreme Orthodox Jews won't eat with the likes of you and me. So, you know, it still happens today. But back then, it was a lot more prevalent. But Peter had received this vision from God. Peter had begun to, to reach out to Gentiles, uh, even as a good Jewish guy. But he goes up to Antioch to check out what, what's going on up there, because Antioch was a Gentile church, and God was doing great stuff in Antioch. And Peter goes up to check out Antioch, and while he's there, he's eating with the Gentiles, which is a big breakthrough for Peter, big breakthrough for him. And who knows, he might have even had a pork chop while he was there. I don't know, maybe. I doubt it, but you know, he, he definitely was eating with them. And then, and then Peter's Jewish governing board come from Jerusalem up to check on Peter. And suddenly Peter gets kind of sheepish. Maybe I shouldn't be eating with the Gentiles. And he pulls away from the Gentiles, stops eating with them, doesn't respond to their Facebook posts anymore, you know. And sure enough, the other Jews in Antioch, they start withdrawing. Paul says, even Barnabas followed that crowd. And can you imagine, just think for a second, the Bible, you know, he doesn't really tell us the impact of it, but I'm sure you can imagine it. The kind of impact that that would have on the Gentile believers in Antioch, can you imagine? You know, you got the Apostle Peter. He's a prominent guy. Everybody knew Peter was a big name. And, and he's in your church, and you're eating with him, and things are great. And then Peter pulls away. You think maybe as a Gentile, you might feel a little dissed by that? I think so. I think there was some confusion then in the ranks in the church, and maybe some, maybe some hurt feelings. Uh, and so Paul goes, we got to deal with this. This is not good. And he deals with it publicly because it was a public problem. That's why the whole church was affected by it. It was like the elephant in the room. Everybody knew it was happening. So Paul deals with it publicly. That's why a public sin gets dealt with publicly. Private sin gets dealt with privately. This was public. They dealt with it as a whole church. You know, the same temptation that Peter faced and gave into is the same temptation that you and I face nowadays. The pressure of religion is to have the right appearance. And here's how this plays out a lot in church. It doesn't play out in our haircuts, you know, like, oh, that's the right haircut. There's the evangelical haircut. There's the, it, that's, I mean, maybe in some church circles it does. But I can tell you how it probably plays out more likely in our church. It's this. I see, I see Todd and Josh, you know, and Rebecca, they're worshiping, and you go, oh, man, I'd really love to worship like that. I, I want to worship like that. Well, but you can't, because you worship like you do, right? I've been in churches where there's charismatic churches, and I love charismatic worship, but that can become a religion, where the expectation is that everybody is dancing and shouting and sweating and hooting and hollering and right? And then I've been in churches where they're rather stiff, and that becomes the religion, where 
Ooh, don't you dare raise your hands because oh, you're getting wild, you know. Either way, it's a religion because either way, you're giving in to the appearance. The point is, the point is, you worship God, he's, Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. So, you know what? That means you could come into a charismatic worship service where they're dancing and hooting and hollering and sweating and having a grand old time. And you know, you could be on your knees quietly before the Lord, reflecting, worshiping in the depth of your heart, right? Or you can come into a high church service where their hands are stuffed in their pockets and raise your hands and be free. The point is, the point is you respond you know, worship is a genuine response from my, it's, it's given my love to Jesus, you know? Or let's take prayer. I get jealous sometimes. I see Elaine Sheminsky praying, and I'm like, man, I wish I could pray like that. Well, I can't pray like that because I'm not Elaine. You can't pray like that, you know? You pray like you pray. That's how you do it. I mean, the point is you're praying. That's the point not praying like it's and you know what happens in the church the danger is this you'll get somebody with uh, I'll just I'm just picking on prayer but you get somebody who has a great prayer life and and God's really moving and then you know what they do in America they write a book and they start conferences and next thing you know all thousands of Christians go to learn how to pray just like that that's religion that's why, personally, I avoid a lot of those conferences because I've been to enough of them over the years and I'm like, I just walk away disappointed. Like, Jesus is not there, man. It's all about this method. This, uh, you, you understand the heart? So it's not about necessarily the haircut. Everybody has to cut like this. But it's about, it's about I want to look like that because that's, that's the way it really is. That's religion. That's religion. I, uh, what happens a lot of times in Christendom is we look like each other and we don't look like Jesus. So, Peter gave in to the pressure to appear a certain way before all of his Jewish buddies. And it was nasty. And you and I need to as well be very aware of that pressure <laughs> because it's nasty. The third pressure is this. You like my fancy words? I tried for a long time to preach like somebody who was really smooth, but that's just, I'm sorry, not me. Um, so, <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, we go to the third piece. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Just stop right there for a moment. We're in the same piece, but let's stop for a second. The word justification, justified, it means simply this, justified never sinned. So forgiveness means your sins are forgiven. Oh, thank you. Justification says what sin? Follow that? So really, if you put it this way, so, so it rhymes better, salvation is the forgiveness of sin. 
Justification is the removal of the old record. Sanctification is now I'm being made just like Jesus. He goes those three very important theological terms there. But justification is my record is clean. It's not even, what sin? It's not even there anymore. You can only have that as a gift, right? Can the criminal go to the court and say, hey, uh, I demand that my record's clean now? No, I need the judge to remove the record. Jesus is the judge. And in justification, Jesus goes, your record, gone. It's clean. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? And so Paul says, look, as a Jew, I know all about following the rules. Right? I, we got the rules down. And I can tell you, following the rules does not bring justification. Following the rules can maybe distance yourself from your past, right? I can, the law says, look, all these broken laws over here, but look, now I'm a law-abiding citizen. Everything's great. Yeah, but that's still there. And Paul goes, in justification, that's when that's removed from my past. So now I'm free. So that's, that's the first thing. He goes, now the religious person is going to throw out a objection to this teaching. And Paul, uh, he's, he's thinking of that objection in his next words. And the objection by the religious person to the teaching of justification by faith is, well, yeah, Jesus wipes away your sins, but. Anytime the word but is there, the rest of it is religion. So, yeah, yeah, but. If you, if you sin, then that means that Jesus is, you know, approving of your sin because he's already forgiven you. Everything's all better. Everything's great. So every time you sin from here on out, does that mean that Jesus is approving of your sin because he's already forgiven you in advance of all the things you've done wrong? Paul says, look at verse 17. He answers that objection. If in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? That's the question. And his answer is, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And now here's the, good, here's the good stuff. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, through keeping all the rules, then Christ died for nothing, he says. He goes, I've been crucified. Maybe you've seen that on a poster somewhere. and You've seen, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean? To say that Jesus was crucified, he was crucified for two reasons two reasons. The first reason is that he broke the Jewish laws. He didn't break God's laws. Clarify that. Jesus never broke God's laws, but he sure did break a few of the Jewish laws. Like, he didn't keep the Sabbath the way that they thought he should keep the Sabbath. Like, 
They crucified him for being a blasphemer because he claimed to be the son of God and he could forgive people's sins. They crucified him for that. I mean, so in one sense, he was crucified kind of as a lawbreaker, if you will. He broke the Jewish laws and they crucified him for it. But on another sense, Jesus was crucified in order to satisfy the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Friends, you and I, I don't think we can fully grasp how angry God is at the sin of the world. We, I, I don't think we could stand, we couldn't stand to bear to look at it. But if you can imagine the wrath of God as being like a dam, a big dam, and, and it's holding back all this water, you know? And that's the wrath of God ready to be unleashed against humanity, against all human beings for our sin. I mean, God hates our sin. And if you, if, I mean, people ask, well, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why couldn't he have just, uh, you know, drunk poison and died? Well, because his death needed to fit the crime. You see the horror of the cross, you're beginning to get a small glimpse of God's unmitigated anger and wrath towards the sin of humanity. That's what you see on the cross. Jesus couldn't accomplish that by taking a pill and dying for the world. It had to be suffering and anguish and torture and every other horrible thing that you could imagine because our sin is that bad. Do you follow that? That's how bad it is. And so Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Here's what that means. God's wrath is coming against all of humanity for our sin. It's like the dam breaks and it's rushing upon us and Jesus steps in on the cross and he takes it. You know, the hit, the, 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 the water, the torrent of God's wrath is pounding, pounding at Jesus, right? Just beating him until every last drop from what was behind that dam, every last drop of God's wrath until it is poured out upon Jesus. Romans says that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. It was almost like after the death of Christ, you could audibly hear God go, he poured it all out on his son. So that anybody who stands behind Jesus, here's where you and I are. We're going, that's us. And Jesus is taking it all for you and me. That's why it's so horrible to denounce Jesus or deny him because I'm like, I, I'm stepping outside of the protection of that. I'm like, I can handle this on my own. I got it. Ha, you're a fool. You're a fool. You can't handle it on your own. So we hide behind Jesus, and we, you know, while he satisfies the wrath of God. So Paul goes, now back to Paul's statement. I have been crucified with Christ. You know what that means? That means I am no longer under the rules. I don't even have to follow the rules. The rules aren't even mine. I don't have to, Jesus, Jesus died for those. He died in them. He died under them. They're gone. And... I don't even worry about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not coming at Doug Rouse. I am free from that. 
can you now understand what that means to be truly free? That's a free person. I'm not bound by the rules, and I'm not worried about the wrath. I am free. Now, the religious person goes, uh, but if you throw out all the rules, what's going to keep you in line? Relationship. Follow Jesus. There you go. Follow Jesus, and uh, you'll be keeping any rule that has to be kept. You'll be doing what you need to do and not doing what you shouldn't be doing. Just follow Jesus. See? But religion says, ah, you don't need to follow Jesus. Follow our rules. Uh, do this, and then you're okay. And Jesus goes, I died for all of that. Follow me. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. So I'm dead to the rules. I'm not worried about the wrath. I'm free. And the life I live now, I live for Christ. I'm living in Christ. And as I live in Christ, you're doing everything you need to do. See? That's why the but there, well, if you remove all the rules, but, that's why it's not necessary. It's only necessary if you're trapped in religion. If you're caught up in relationship with Jesus, the but is unnecessary because you'll follow where Jesus leads. You see that? So the pressures of religion, friends, let's just wrap it up and then we'll get to it. So maybe you see where in your own life you've fallen prey to the pressure of authority who gives you the right or who gives you the privilege or permission to say and do what it is you're saying and doing? I mean, have you ever stared at a hungry person and said somebody should do something about that? You know? Maybe God's calling you to do something about it in that moment. Given into the pressure of appearance, I, I, I want to be sure I pray like this or worship like that or study like that or preach like that or share the gospel like that or you know the appearances you know if you let go of religion you'll be a whole lot more at rest <laughs> really and then the third is perhaps it's the pressure of just abiding by all of the rules and listen Jesus says you're not under that anymore he sets you free from it. Now, the reason why religion is so appealing is because it's so defined. I like rules, frankly. Don't you? I mean, I like to know where I stand. I can measure myself with rules. I know that I've kept them. Okay, here's the five rules. I did all five of them. Oh, good. Now I can feel better about myself. Do you see how that's selfish? It's not at all Christ-centered. So Jesus says, would you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you're tied down by religion, come to me, I'll give you rest. Hmm. And why I said earlier this morning, some of us have been saved by religion and not by the gospel. Maybe initially you were 
given the gospel, you know, that Jesus died for your sins and uh, you can accept him as your savior. That is the gospel. But then somewhere very quickly thereafter, it became religion. Okay, now you got to do this, got to do this. You know, somebody gave you all the fine print. And they, like, friends, and I'm asking you this morning, let it go. Let the fine print go. Let it go. Is this risky? There's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of preachers that wouldn't make this offer to a group of people because the fear is that you'd run out the door, go crazy, and uh, never see you again. I don't fear that at all because the power of a relationship with Jesus, the power of that to keep you is far stronger than the power of rules to keep you. You understand that you are precious to Jesus, that you are his kid brother, you're his kid sister, that he shares his inheritance with you. When you know who you are in Christ you, and you understand, man, and you know, his desire for you, that you're the apple of his eye, you know, that you melt his butter. You, you, when you understand that, I, you're not going anywhere. I find I can be motivated by two different things. And then I'll close with this, I promise, I'm done. So the, we can be motivated either by guilt or we can be motivated by grace. You can guilt me into doing a lot of things. You really can. But, you know, that's short-lived. I mean, I'll, I'll do it, but it's not going to last. Or you can grace me into doing something. And that's what Jesus does. He graces us. He says, I forgive you, I cleanse you, I justify you, right? I make it, your record is clean, you're free to go. He does that. You go, but Lord... What next? Come, just follow me. You're mine. And when I understand the grace of Jesus, and you know, the, someone who um, someone who uses God's grace as a license to sin doesn't understand how bad sin is. They take it lightly. But when I receive the grace of Jesus, man, it inspires me to holiness. I want to be a better man because of the way that Jesus believes in me. See? Whole different motive. Whole different motive. So let's pray together for, okay, as we close. And guys, you want to come with your guitars. And, but Lord, uh, huh. I'm just, with your head bowed and your eyes closed as we're praying here, friends, just, um, I keep coming back to that, losing your religion. Some of you were saved by religion. And this morning, I'm giving you the opportunity to be saved by the gospel. I just sense for whatever, I just sense like in my heart that that's a critical statement. And if, if that statement is ringing in your heart right now, it's kind of ringing, you know? then I want to encourage you to respond and to respond to Jesus in faith and let go of religion and say, Jesus, I want, I'm coming to you for salvation.
please, Lord, I pray today that um, I pray, Lord, that you would strip away from us any any last um, any last vestige of religion. And Lord, I recognize today that it's just an insidious temptation in my life, and I, I want it gone, Lord. I pray, Jesus, eyes on you, Jesus, eyes on you. And I, I give you permission, Jesus, to reveal any area of my life that has been bound by religion, and I ask you, Jesus, let's take care of it now. Let's be done with it, Lord, because I don't want there to be anything between me and you. And I pray that for my friends here today too, Jesus. So we ask this in your holy name.